podcast this week, we ask, would you like to play a game of Chris Rock, Star, and the driving force behind Spiral from the Book of Saw? And we also talk to the great Sigourney Weaver about her new movie, My New York Year, plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that says we should take off and nuke the site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. Hello, Helen O'Hara. How are you? I'm good. I've just had an eye test, and I am still not blind. Hurrah! Who said that? Who said that? That's my... That's funny. One, one of the funniest jokes I've ever seen on Twitter. A guy put a sign, uh, took a picture of a sign outside an opticians that said, free eye test, right? And he, he he used the caption, what the fuck is eye toast? Very, very funny. Very, very funny indeed. Uh, we're also joined by Mr. James Dyer. Hello. Last but not least this week in the revolving fourth chair, we have the nicest man in showbiz. It was Michael Palin, but he went on a killing spree. So he's disqualified. It um, is as your instead, lawyer, he didn't. He didn't. He, he, apparently he didn't, but let's read his diaries in 10 years time and find out. <laughs> it is... Ben Travis. Did you did you read about the Michael Palin news in a story on the Empire website written by Trent Bavis? Because I may have planted that. <laughs> Trent Bavis. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. Um, it was my fact for this week's three fact structure that Michael Palin has gone on the killing spree, but apparently it's made up. So that's correct. Yes. Yes. So I must I must recuse myself from the three fact structure, but that's what we're going to oh, do first. A big change. <laughs> That's what we're going to do first, folks. Uh, it is the three fact structure, the beloved segment in which my three colleagues of such lethal cunning bring me an obscure, unusual or arcane movie fact, try and impress me with it, and I give a point to the one who impresses me the most. Now, Ben, famously, his facts are horrendous. They are mm-hmm. glitter-wrapped turds. Um, but Ben, have you brought me... A shiny gold trinket of I mean, facts I have an absolute doozy. It's the shortest fact ever, uh, mainly to weigh out the fact that, that oh, I love it. James is going to do a 10-minute speech. I love it already. Speech, ben has which won. none of those things are his fact. My fact this week, uh, which I learned this morning from my partner, is did you know Halle Berry's mum is Scouse? Secret Scouser. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I never knew that. It just seems so unlikely. <laughs> so, I, I you should have known out. that. You should have known that Chris would know that because she's a Liverpool right. fan. Isn't she? Right. She's and then, Liverpool uh, she kind of is. Yeah. went down she a bit is. of a rabbit hole, found out Mike Myers' parents are Scouse. They're all from Old Swan in Liverpool. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's my fact. I can tell you some f- fucked up stuff about Peter Pan from my Disney podcast, if that helps. <laughs> <laughs> go on, go on, hit me with a fucked up Peter Pan fact. Uh, so... The original J.M. Barry story went through many incarnations. It began as a short story within a wider story. And in that incarnation, Peter Pan is a forever seven-day-old baby who goes around Kensington Gardens burying other babies possibly alive. This cannot be true. No, I mean, the fundamental problem there is how would a seven-day-old baby be able to hold a space? He is also part bird and can fly. Because again, he's part bird. Again, how would I a mean, bird be able to hold a spade? Again, this, this, this doesn't, James, obviously. doesn't hold water. No, it holds water in a... I could hold water, literally hold yeah. water, but it could not hold a shovel, a spade, or any other kind of digging implement. I think it could. A big bird? Not not big bird. Big bird could big absolutely bird could, do Because big bird yeah. has hands. Yeah. You know? But uh, a big enough bird could hold something in its beak. And As your dig. lawyer, I'd just like to make clear that big bird does not bury babies. <laughs> 
in Kensington Gardens. I never or said on the Sesame Big Bird Street. Fairies. I just babies. want that to be clear, though, to the listeners. All right. Okay. Hell's Bells. You're Hello. up next. Yeah, you may know this one because I, I learned about this on Twitter the other night and you had tweeted just before I saw it. So it might have come up in your feed as well if you follow the same person. I stalk but Twitter relentlessly, so possibly. Of course you do. Of course you do. But um, this is a fact about Dermot Mulroney, um, who we all know, of course, is the star of My Best Friend's Wedding and stuff. Um, but he was also <laughs> in The Family Stone. Uh, and at the premiere of The Family Stone, he got chatting to uh, Michael Giacchino. And they talked about their mutual love of music because Dermot Mulroney plays the cello, as all of us fans of Mozart in the Jungle know, because he played a world-class cellist there and did his own cello playing, which I remember at the time going, wow, he's like, he's really good at miming playing the cello. That's because he was actually playing the cello. Cello. Yeah. Dermot Mulroney. Yeah. Is a world-class cellist. Well, no, he Mm. was playing a world-class cellist. He's a very good cellist. Apparently he was in like a national orchestra when he was a teenager. I'm not oh, saying so he's, he's world class now. Class cellist. I'm I, know, not I mean, it's embarrassing yeah. for him, right? Yeah. Anyway, he got Sucks chatting to, to Michael Giacchino at the premiere of The Family Stone about this cello playing. And Michael Giacchino said, you should come down the next time I'm scoring something. And he has been in the orchestra for almost all of Michael Giacchino's scores since then. So he has played on the score for Mission Impossible 3, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, Star Trek Into Darkness, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and two Spider-Man films. No that's fucking insane. way. Kidding. He is the 11th cellist in the orchestra, he Now, did they, did they turn the microphone down on him because he's only a national class cellist and not a world class <laughs> cellist? And he's just playing away and he thinks he's on the soundtrack, but he's really not? I mean, not. I saw a little. I did check up on this. I read a few articles about it. It has been talked about. There is video of him in the orchestra. They have not obviously turned down the mics around him. I don't know what to tell you. He appears to be on the beat and you know in tune and the whole thing. Who'd have thought Dirty Steve Stevens was going to be a not quite world class cellist? He might be world class. I don't want to undersell him either, but he is a decent cellist and he is on the soundtrack of most of Michael Giacchino's films. So if he's obviously off shooting somewhere, he doesn't, you know, fly back specially. But if, if he's in Fair. town, he goes he goes down and he plays on the score. What if what if Giacchino's scoring an Abbey Road? I don't know. I guess not. But although he, the fact that he's been on these Star Wars ones suggests that maybe he, you know, pops over to London. I don't know. This is fucking wild. Yeah. This may be the best fact we've ever had in this this yeah. segment. This Thanks. this is the thing that single-handedly justifies the existence of this entire segment. I would like to forego my fact. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> because, well, I feel like I feel like there's no point because I can't win this week. So I feel like no, I, no, no, I, no, no, I, you don't know no, that. No, that's not how it works. No, no. <laughs> Can I not? I can't just no, bow out that's and not concede. How it works. I can't no. concede. You never know, I have James. To go through this nonsense. Yours Come might on, be so better you. than mine. You can find out. I mean, I, I'm absolutely certain I can steal second place, but uh, <laughs> all right, fine. Upon your heads be this. So this week I want to talk about Fredo, not the small chocolate Cadbury's frog guys, but Fredo Corleone, or more specifically, John Cazali, who plays Fredo in Godfather's Part 1 and 2. Uh, anyone who's seen the Richard Shepard documentary, you've seen this, but I know, I know it was you, the Cazali documentary. Well, anyway, if you've seen that, you'll already know this fact. But if you haven't, Fredo, who is clearly the least successful of the Corleone brothers, uh, and a character Donald Trump Jr. was regularly likened to, um, he was a much bigger noise off screen. And I would say the most successful actor in any of the Godfather films. And let me tell you why. So Kazali was a, he was a theatre actor. Uh, he originally he taught up a decent body of work 
on Broadway and off. And it was while working as a second job as a messenger to pay the rent that he actually met a young Al Pacino, who we went on to star with in, I think it was like a production of The Indians, The Indian Wants the Bronx in the mid-60s. Uh, but it wasn't until 1971 when he was starring with Richard Dreyfuss uh, in a play called Line that he was spotted by Francis Ford Coppola's casting director and mooted for the part of our favourite bumbling Corleone brother, Fredo. Uh, and as you will all recall, he's pretty fucking awesome in it. It's a lovely, beautifully understated, heartbreaking performance. And Coppola was so blown away by that that he not only expanded his role for Godfather Part 2, but he also wrote him a role in the conversation because he liked him so much. And Al Pacino said that all he actually wants to do for the rest of his life, he said at the time, was work with John Cazale because he learned more from him than from any other actor. So the two of them ended up on screen together once more in 1975 in Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, but in 1977, John Cazale was diagnosed with lung cancer and he'd already been cast in The Deer Hunter. And the studio were like, no, we can't do it. We can't insure him. He's terminally ill. So Robert De Niro apparently put up the insurance money to keep Cazale in The Deer Hunter. Uh, they shot all of his fil- uh, scenes first that he could do them. Uh, and, but tragically, he did actually die shortly afterwards, actually before the film came out at just 42 years old. But it will not surprise you to hear that none of those things are my fact because you will dimly recall way, way back in, you know, last year when I began this fact that he, I said he was more successful than any other person in The Godfather, more than Al Pacino, more than Robert De Niro, more than Marlon Brando, more than all of these people. And that is because of this. He did just five films. He has five films to his credit that every single one of them was nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. Godfather, Conversation, Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Was he great at choosing films or were these films great because he was in them? Who can say? But in terms of sheer hit rate, I'm saying John Cazale is a bit of a legend. And that is my fact. It is your fact. It is your fact. Um, I knew that. Yeah. I didn't. I enjoyed that. I'm glad. I'm glad. It's a good, it is a good fact. It is a good fact. We went on this journey together. I, I very <laughs> nearly uh, did what I did with your fact and, and th- 30 seconds in going, yep. Know this. <laughs> and we, we've discussed this on the pod. I... Very early on in the pod's life, I remember talking about John Casale and his incredible run of five films. But, you know, hey-ho, Jimbo, you probably weren't listening in either. So, Almost certainly not. <laughs> so, so it's all good. Now, Ben, Ben, your fact was... It was thanks for coming, Ben. <laughs> it's just nice to be here. <laughs> it's, it's great to have you here. Uh, Jimbo, yours was... Um, I, I'm, You know, you could have gone with some of those other facts, that, you know, the, the sort of supplementary facts along the way and who knows who knows one of those might have got you the uh, the, the gold this star not. this week but but Helen's fact was astonishing they were I mean, even, even I would give it to Helen thank absolutely. you absolutely thank you though to at whoop at one two three for the John Cazada fact <laughs> yeah yeah well thank you to Michael Giacchino for tweeting earlier in the week about Fair. John Mulroney yeah. in fairness and thanks to Sam Summers for giving me all the good Disney facts which you can hear on the <laughs> Disney University podcast Hey, Uh, All right. So well done, Helen. Helen wins this week. I'm uh, honestly, after this is over, I'm going to listen to the Spider-Man Far From Home track because Mysterio's theme is a fucking banger. And it's going to be even better now knowing that Dermot Mulroney is on all over it. (laughs) Although he's not on my favorite bit, which is when Mysterio's theme kicks in in the Spider-Man Far From Home, Far From Home, Sweet Home Suite, um, which is which ends the album. And then when Mysterio's theme kicks in, there's this incredible synth passage where it just goes all funky for for 30 seconds. Mulroney, he's nothing to do with that. So screw him. Far anyway, from home wow. sweet. Is it literally, is it called home sweet home? Because if it isn't, then. It's far know. from home sweet home. 
Ah, okay, sweet S U I T E because Michael Cicchino loves his yeah, puns. I, was about to say, I would I would have been very disappointed if he'd missed that. Obviously, <laughs> he loves his puns. Well done, everybody. We got through the three fact structure for another week, and now it is time to barrel straight into this week's listener question, which is a bit of a doozy, actually. This comes from at David O'Keefe on Twitter. And he says, in honour of James, I'm not entirely sure why he's saying in honour of James. Everything should be done in honour of me. Uh, I don't don't think so. Again, I think this is one of James's burner accounts, but uh, here is a suggestion for a listener question. Which character was not in the first film in a franchise, but since they joined the franchise, you cannot imagine the franchise without them? I think this is a cracking question. I think also before we get into it, we should lay some ground rules. <laughs> All right. So sure. I'm not going to accept overarching long form narratives like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, for example, because quite frankly, you know, we'd be here all year if we started discussing the MCU for one thing. Second, and this may be more controversial, I'm not going to allow films based on books. So, for example, someone here might say Faramir in the Gol- Lord of the Rings Gollum, trilogy. More like- or Gollum, although isn't he's he in the first one? He's, he, there's a mm, shot of him, but he doesn't yeah, speak. I don't think I can. definitely see his feet. Uh, it's Quentin Tarantino's favourite shot in that movie. <laughs> and then, uh, so, you know, someone might say Gollum, or someone say someone might say Faramir, but they're just basically following the Who's template laid down. Who's saying Faramir? Look, in listen. Chris's head, somebody's saying Faramir, and in nowhere David else. Wenham, I don't know who is saying no, that. No, no, no. I saw something. Was it was it Joe Robinson the other day, who was obviously on this podcast a couple of weeks ago? Anyway, someone was talking about you know, you sent me your favorite thirst trap people from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And an overwhelming number of people who aren't David Wenham said Faramir. Faramir is the hottest person I in mean, the Lord of the Rings movies. I'm sorry, did they miss like Aragorn? That doesn't make any sense. I don't, I don't think don't you were understand. allowed to have the, the fellowship. I think, you know, it was like what? kind of non-fellowship actors. And then David Wenham was in there as well. And then some people were going Lee Pace as, you know, whoever yeah, he plays. Yeah, all the yeah. yeah, 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 that's him. I, I mean, look, that that's just the Lee Pace-ness now, because Thrandall himself is not, like, hot. But, um, I mean, the answer in that case is Aymer anyway. I just, I'm very confused by that. Also, like, how can you leave out the Fellowship? That just doesn't make any sense, people. Come on! And you're pretty much just left with, like, Sauron and Wormtongue. No one's picking them. I know, them. like, this I mean, nobody. Sauron's hot. Let's, let's get right down to please. it. Get out, of, get out of here with that. I mean, he's got beautiful eyes. <laughs> or <But> eye. <laughs> so fiery and passionate. <laughs> Um, well, one out of two ain't bad, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so I'm not going to accept Lord of the Rings either. So no MCU, no Lord of the Rings. And I'm also not going to accept things like one-off TV sequels. shows. TV shows. Well, TV shows is a whole different conversation because then it yes. opens it up to Fraser Crane, who showed up in Series 3, Season 3 of Cheers, or Crichton, who was, I think, Series 3 of Red Dwarf, wasn't he, Jimbo? Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. So, and then, you know, you got... Star Trek and all sorts of shenanigans yeah. going on there as well. So we'll, again, we'll be here all year. I'm Technically, not I think ex- he actually he's, a, he's in the last episode of season two, but it's a different actor and different character, so it's basically a different crime. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm also not going to accept one-off sequels or sure. films sense. in which a character didn't appear again. So, for example, to use the Fredo, the Fredo example of The Godfather Part Two, which is full of great characters like Frank Pentangeli or Hyman Roth. Frankie Five don't Angels. Show up, yeah, who don't show up in Godfather Part Three. So... 
I'm going to discount any of those. So that still leaves a huge... I've written down a whole bunch of people. Um, I will accept Star Wars characters as well. Oh. I know there's the overarching narrative thing of the MCU, but there's there are fewer films in Star Wars, and the original trilogy in particular was intended as a trilogy. But then, so when Lando shows up... Yeah, but the question is, you know, characters who you now can't imagine the franchise without. So I don't... Lando like, Calrissian. You can. Okay, but you can imagine the franchise without him because he's in a not in a bunch of the films. <laughs> he's in two of the first three Star Wars movies. Therefore, I can't imagine those movies without him. Oh, oh that's a different question. It's the same question. <laughs> I like that yeah, we can have so. Star Wars people because Yoda is on mine. Yoda is so inherently Star Wars that's to me. That's a good answer. That's yeah. that's one of the definitive answers, yes. I think it took me so long to realise that Yoda's not in the first Star Wars because he is just such a big part of <laughs> that whole universe to me. He feels like such an integral part no, of 100%. the galaxy. And also, while I hate to conform to my own personal stereotype, Emperor Palpatine as well, Good I think, Lord. is uh, you know, a sort of an MVP-type character. So, And when I say that he's an MVP, I, of course, mean during his very limited role in Empire Strikes Back and his larger, better role in Return of the Jedi, not his <sighs> egregious appearance in The Rise of Skywalker. Somehow... Palpatine returned. (laughs) (laughs) The moment Oscar Isaac died inside. (laughs) By MVP, you mean most valuable Palpatine, right? Um, (laughs) That's right. Most villainous Palpatine. Whoa, 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 whoa. So you're saying he's a more valuable Palpatine than Rey. It's Rey Skywalker, Helen. Were you not listening? Right. So while we're there, this probably breaks the rules, but the sequel trilogy characters are in mine. Rey, Poe, Finn, Kylo Ren. They're my guys. I disqualify those on the count that it's a separate trilogy and basically a separate thing. I mean, it's dubious, but I would like to include them because they're great. All of these rules would make no sense. (laughs) Look, the answer we're all fighting towards is actually, obviously, The Rock. But I just yeah, it's Luke Hobbs. It's definitely Luke Hobbs. (laughs) And 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 maybe Fast Nine is going to you know prove prove us wrong and prove the franchise can now exist without him. Um, but but it's hard to imagine, really, isn't it? I mean, you know. I'm sorry, Helen. Um, whilst we're talking about Star Wars, we can't not mention Han Solo. Sorry, Fast and Furious. We can't not mention Han Solo. <laughs> He's the answer from the Fast and Furious movies. Yes, I know that The Rock came on and he brought his Thunderwear, or as he claims he actually said, Thunderwear. Thunderwear, yeah. I always heard Thunderwear. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's the other way around, actually. It's the other way around. It, it, we thought it was Thunderwear, but it's actually Thunderwear with a th. Really? So, yeah, yeah huh. that's right. Oh, Anyway, the point being, either way, he's brought it, you know, and that's important. Yeah. I mean, Han Solo, but the question is, again, that you can't imagine the franchise without, and they clearly did, because he wasn't in, like, the but last But they also couldn't, films. because they brought him back from the dead straight away for, like, several yeah. movies. <laughs> they were like, He wasn't in the shit ones. And so, and they, and they were shit because, well, not, you know, he, they, they were shit because he wasn't in them. And they were We've like, long established okay. that the I first mean, film is the best. Seven is the best one, Chris. Seven isn't. Seven's seven not is the best, best one. Seven, seven, one. seven and five are the best. Hang seven on. is the best. Hang one. on. When this is a hot take. When did seven become considered the best one? Seven is great. Seven is are amazing. You me? It's got the most right. I I prefer yeah. the insanely over the top action. Like five is great, but six, yes. seven, eight. It's it's where they're just going crazy, stupid, over the top, which I'm a hundred percent able. I'm not with him on it six has, and eight, but I'm with him on seven. It has the most <laughs> insane over the top action, and it has the real, genuine, actual emotional pull 
of all the Paul Walker stuff. You also have, obviously that's the Statham one, because for me, the answer to this, as well as the, I mean, there are many, many people in the Fast Saga who you can re- respond to this question with. Obviously you've got Han, but Deckard Shaw, like that takes things up a whole extra notch for me. That's when you got fucking Statham, the rock hitting each other with big wrenches on the top of a car park. It's amazing. <laughs> Seven is the best one. It's no five or one, but it no, is good. Seven is 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 amazing. It's the one where they play chicken several times and they don't understand how to play chicken. They just drive into each other. It's amazing. They just keep driving into each other. It's incredible. All right, I was I was I was somewhat I was somewhat playing to the uh, the crowd when I said that the, he was not in the shit one. Seven is good. Eight is not good. Eight I is think. not good. Okay. That's so good. No. But, but we're not doing a mini episode of the Fast and Furious ranking. But what we are establishing right here, right now, is that there are pretty much loads of characters in the Fast and Furious that you can't imagine the franchise with, and all of them are more interesting than the actual hero of the franchise, Don Toretto. So, I think that's I think that's interesting. And you know, there's there's obviously uh, Giselle as well. Who's a key integral role to play yes. in, in all of those films. Vital. Yeah. Huge, huge, yeah. huge role, huge role. Benji in Mission Impossible. Yeah, I was going to say the uh, just the Mission Impossible team. Obviously, you've had Ving Rhames from the beginning, but it feels yeah. like yeah. from three onwards is when they started to get a slightly more solid idea of who was in Ethan Hunt's IMF team. I've enjoyed them bringing people back from kind of yeah. three onwards. And also at this point, I think Ilsa Faust kind yeah. of qualifies as an MVP. So Yeah, absolutely. She was my answer, uh, absolutely overwhelmingly, in that, you know, she's plugged into the emotional story of the franchise now, and you can't imagine it without her, whereas I could imagine them skipping okay, they might. Ving Rhames or, or, or Peg for, for an installment. I'd be you know? very upset if they skip Ving Rhames. I love that he's been in there yeah. since the beginning. Yeah. Luther rules. I'm sad that they've never brought back Maggie Q or, or Paula mm. Patton, who was really, really good in, in Ghost Protocol. Maggie Q was mm. great in Mission Impossible 3. And, uh, but, you know, the real MVP, although this doesn't count because he was in the first one of the Mission Impossible franchise, is, of course, Kittredge, and he will be back in Mission Impossible 7. So, but that's not the, the question. So. That's like the complete opposite of the question, because he was in the first one, and he hasn't been in any of the others until the, the 7, which isn't out yet. That's like the precise opposite of what that question is. Shut up, Chris, Ben. Shut up. Question. The, actually, the, the, kind of, the opposite of this question is actually, I think, John Connor. He's in all the bad, <laughs> the worst Terminator. He's obviously I know, good. He's in Terminator on, 2. He's good in Terminator 2, and then they keep bringing him back, and he keeps not being good. <laughs> he, well, he's interesting because he gets worse every time he comes back, yeah. which I think is, is pretty spectacular. So he's like the opposite of the question, is what I'm saying. Hang on a second. I've got to interrogate this. So okay. you're saying Nick Stahl is worse than Edward Furlong? Sure. Okay. And then you're saying, what, the Christian Bale? Christian Bale is he's worse, worse than Nick than Stahl. Nick Stahl. Well, see, the thing is, that's if we oh, if we remember. For you. Oh, <laughs> in fairness, I had forgotten that Terminator Salvation existed, but I would, in my defence, I'm not alone there. <laughs> in, yeah, no, I actually think we could make that argument. I do, and I'll tell you why. Because while Christian Bale is, I would say, a better actor than Nick Stoll, oh, Nick Stoll yeah, is at least playing a character recognisable as the John Connor we've seen before, and Christian yeah. Bale is just some dude. Yeah. So I think you could actually okay, make that Okay, and to that continue argument. this trend, I'm saying Jason Clark is the worst John Connor. No disrespect to Jason Clark. In fairness, I do like Jason Clark usually. Yeah, so do I, but he's just terrible in Genesis. Yeah. Again, it's not his fault, but It's a bad film. It, it's just a very very bad film. Any other suggestions? Leo Getz. Okay. Leo, Leo Getz. I yeah, I think I really like the the story about the frog. It actually makes me like a little bit emotional every time I watch that. So I'm a bit of a fan of his, I think. See, 
I like Leo Getz, played by Joe Pesci, of course, who joins oh, yes, the Lethal, Lethal Weapon, Weapon franchise yeah. in in Lethal Weapon Two, the best, the of, best the Lethal of, of all Lethal Weapon films. Oh, good Lord. Uh, <laughs> and he's not very good in Lethal Weapon Three, and even less good in Lethal Weapon Four. And he's one of the his character is one of the victims of the gangs all here syndrome, which is where when you're making a sequel. The temptation is, oh, hey, the audience liked that character in the last movie. Let's get them back. Mm. Well, is there a story reason to get them back? Uh, no, not really. Is there even reason why these characters who don't actually like each other would be hanging out in, in, in their lives? No, not really. But let's get them back anyway. So, yeah, Diminishing Returns kick in heavily for Leo Getz, for me, in Lethal Weapon 3 and 4. But Lethal Weapon 2, they fuck you with the drive through They fuck you with the drive through Good stuff. It's that gizmo all here. I'm very confused. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, hang on, no two film franchises. You said that to begin with. Um, I know, because then quest- we could have Cher in Mamma Mia too. Oh my God, we had the brain gremlin. <gasps> the brain gremlin. Yeah, but we, we can't because can't you said have no two the brain gremlin. I know, I know, I know. But if we could, I would have okay. the brain gremlin. Oh, the brain gremlin. Amazing. Yeah, love him. Yeah. Question. Would the alien queen count? Mm. I mean, hmm, interesting. Um, but then by that rationale, I would just put in absolutely everyone in Aliens because, you know, the entire Marine Squadron, really? Hudson Hicks, all of them. You can't imagine yes, Alien 3 you with come that. for Wisbowski. You come for Wisbowski. You come for all of us. Spunkmeyer. Uh, Spunkmeyer is an absolute MVP nailed on. Dietrich. Him, Frost, Dietrich, the whole gang, Apone. Yes. I mean, Apone I'll give you, but... Oh, Matthews, come on. Uh, yes, so basically, even Burke. I'm going to go to town for Burke as well. Carter Why? Burke. No wow. one has He's... ever gone to town for Burke. Don't do it. That's unbelievable, so, James. You don't see them fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage. Very good. Wow. Yes, I, I, I had Hicks, Bishop, and Newt written down. I didn't think of the alien queen, Hellspells, I'll be honest. Um, well, she's she's kind of been a little bit retconned out of existence like i don't think that ridley scott recognizes that whole theory of <laughs> alien biology so he's just just like not got i, I, I kind of tried to ask him about it when we talked for i think covenant and he just didn't answer the question <laughs> at all but but yeah. i just think he's abandoned that bit of alien biology entirely yeah okay uh ben do you have any do you have any more I don't know if I have many. It's hard with films because you don't get that many really long-running film series that aren't based on books. I, I had Voldemort down if we were doing ones that are based on books because he's not really in it until four, which is a big deal. That's technically not true. Technically. He is in the first well, one on the back of Quirrell's head. Yeah. You are disqualified <laughs> as a millennial. Get out. I think we've killed this question. We should probably end it. I think we have. I think we should. I think we should give this question to Michael Palin to do with what he will. Um, Michael Impalin is what they call him because he likes <laughs> they, to. They do not. He likes to. No. He's he's a stabber. He's, he is a stabber. Michael the stabber Palin. That's what they call him. It's in, it's in his diaries. There's a sort of spidery serial killer scroll. <laughs> Notable impalers in history, Vlad. <laughs> Michael. Michael. <laughs> I just. I don't see it. The Empire Podcast would like it be known that Michael Palin is not a serial killer, sociopath, or general stabber. That we Thank know you. of. You don't have to clarify <laughs> that. We have to clarify he could be. We're not saying he's definitely not, because yeah. we have no evidence of that. All right. You can't prove a negative. Oh, my God. Real quick, real quick. I had a couple more written down, okay? Sure. Death in Bill and Ted. 
Yes. Dude. Yeah. 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 I, I take, I, I'm assuming station isn't making your list. Station. Station. No, station is not on my list. Um, I, I'm not, not going to really mention any horror ones necessarily. Um, but perhaps the most terrifying of them all. Bobcat Goldthwaite's said from Police Academy. <laughs> That's a good shout, actually. That is a good shout. I really, really liked him. Yeah. <laughs> is what he have says. we had him on the podcast before? We have. Yeah, I thought so. Go back through the archives, folks. You will find an interview with Bobcat Goldthwaite, and he doesn't sound anything like that. Uh, so <laughs> he was a lovely guy. Lovely guy. Anyway, that is it for the listener question. Uh, which this week came from... Oh, Ben. Ben has suddenly been struck by inspiration. Oh, my God. The whole Woody's Roundup gang in Toy Story 2. Yes, I had them in my, and, in my mind earlier and then I yeah, forgot. And yeah, Bullseye and Bullseye. And Bullseye, yeah. Stinky Pete can fuck Stinky off. Stinky Pete. No, it's not Stinky <laughs> Pete, but Jesse and, Jesse and Bullseye, oh, for sure. Mr. Pricklepants in 3 and 4. Amazing. <sighs> Mr. Pricklepants. What a guy. Mr. Pricklepants is one of those characters where you'd like to go back and drop him in to the first Toy Story. Well, that would make no sense. He's Bonnie's toy. Come on, Chris. Think oh, sorry, I haven't yeah, been thinking about no the uh, the mythology yeah. uh, and the canon Stop trying of to Toy Story. On it. I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> anyway, that is it for this week's listener question. Uh, as ever, if you're screaming at the podcast device of your choice and you want to send some suggestions our way that we may have overlooked, then please do. Uh, I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter, and that's how you can get your questions read out on the show, just like David O'Keefe found to his cost. At Chris Hewitt on Twitter, reply to any of my tweets or slide into my DMs or wait for a panicked shout out every now and again. Although we're good for the next couple of weeks with questions. We are our question cup overfloweth. So we are solid. Time now for the first guest this week. Now, a couple of years ago, the news broke that the Saw franchise, which we thought was dormant, was no longer dormant. It was showing signs of life. And the thing that sparked it into life was Chris Rock. Chris Bloody Rock. Yes, the legendary comedian, as it turns out, is a huge fan of the Saw franchise. And as it doubly turns out, he had an idea for how to resuscitate the Saw franchise uh, with a movie which would star him and Samuel L. Jackson. Cut to a couple of years later. That movie is out right now in UK cinemas, which, by the way, are back open. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Very, very happy. We'll talk about that maybe in the review part of the show. But the film is called Spiral from the Book of Saw, and it stars Chris Rock, who kind of came up with a story for the film but didn't write the script uh, as a cop who gets mixed up with shenanigans and a serial killer whose work bears a close resemblance to Michael, P- to Jigsaw, to Jigsaw. Cannot stress it enough. His work does not resemble that of Michael Palin. Well, he's making a series of beloved documentaries and also being part of an iconic <laughs> yes. British comedy troupe. That's so bizarre. <laughs> I what would flex. watch that Saw what, movie. <laughs> what, what, what a flex that would be for that serial killer. That would be, that would be yeah. incredible. Um, what a ripping yarn that'd be. Even that'd <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so the film is called Spiral from the Book of Saws, out right now. And I had the great pleasure of talking to Chris Rock just the other week uh, about that and a great many things besides. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined in the Emperor podcast by the star of Spiral from the Book of Saw, Mr. Chris Rock. How are you, sir? I'm uh, pretty good. How are you? I'm not too bad. Where in the world are you at the moment? I'm in uh, New York City, Soho. Okay. Okay. Nice day over there. Is it all right? You're stuck in this room at the moment, obviously. 
it's okay. It's okay. You know, New York doesn't really spring doesn't happen till the end of May. So, you know. <laughs> well, we just had snow over here in, in parts of, uh, of England. So the whole thing is completely fucked at the moment okay. anyway. So who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Um, but I have to say, Lee, um, the moment I heard that you were doing this movie, I got very, very excited because the idea of Chris Rock and Saw together is a combination that you just wouldn't think of necessarily. But has this been rocking? Has this been running through your mind for a while? It's been percolating, as they say, yeah. in my mind for a while. Yeah, I on a lot of levels. Like, um, like me and my friends, we like to play a game where we watch a movie and wonder, wonder, could it be? Could you have a comedian in the part? And would it change the movie? Like you watch a movie like uh, Man on Fire. Yeah. Is it any different if Eddie Murphy is the guy? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instead of Denzel. Like, hmm, it doesn't really change it that much. I do that all the time. Like, you know, up in the air. If that's Jim Carrey, what's different about this movie? You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah. Me and Chappelle keep, you know, we have this fantasy where we're going to remake Heat. And he's going to play... Uh, De Niro and I'm going to play Pacino. Oh. <laughs> and it's like, okay, we can, we can play these parts and be funny and give some of the other parts to funny people. So it's like the guy that's Wayne Grow is like Cat Williams and Chris <laughs> Tucker. <laughs> and the guy that, uh, that Dennis Haysbert plays the cook, like that's Leslie Jones. And <laughs> like... <laughs> Like you can do, you don't even have to change that much of the movie, but you, it would make every one of those scenes funny and add a different layer to the movie. Actually, no, Cat Williams would be the Val Kilmer character. See, uh-huh. that was like, wow. anyway. Yeah, yeah, honestly, so- you have just described my new favorite movie. This has to happen. <laughs> this has yes, to happen. me, Dave, and Cat. Can you imagine? Oh, that 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 coffee table scene. You don't have to change it. You don't really have to change it that much, but it becomes a completely different movie. So we kind of. I thought I could do this with Saw. Yeah, I I remember watching Saw two specifically, and watching the Donnie Wahlberg character, and I thought he was great. So I'm not. You know, I think Donnie Wahlberg is great. I'm a new kids on the block fan. I think Mark Wahl. I don't. Last thing I need is a bunch of big ass Wahlbergs trying to kick my ass. I don't need that <laughs> shit. Right. So. But I watched that movie. And I was like, oh, man, this is really good. Boy, I could have been really funny in that part. Yeah, I could have been funny in that part and not really. Changed anything about the movie. Yeah. And not disrupted the movie. So that was that was what I wanted to do, right? Yeah. So I kind of pitched this to the good people at Lionsgate and the producers of Saw. And once they, once I, I, I had to convince them I didn't want to make scary movie. Once they, they realized, I'm like, no, no, I want to do something closer to like 48 hours. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And once they, they wrapped their mind around it, to my surprise, they went for it. <laughs> Because it's, you know, it's one of those things too. Ever have an idea when you're young? I mean, how old are you? Uh, I'm 44. Yeah, man. So like an idea you have when you're 29 
mm. or 25. It's like, hey, get the fuck out of here. You have the same idea in your 50s. It's like, this guy's a genius. It's like the <laughs> same exact idea. So <laughs> I, I was I was watching the uh, I was watching the movie, though, and I was I was going, wow, this opens up a whole new world of possibilities. I mean, you blow my mind with the hate thing uh, that that uh, that needs to happen. But I was thinking <laughs> a Chris Rock nightmare on Elm Street, you know, a Chris Rock Lost Boys. I don't know why that popped into my head, but that would be that'd be fun. So because you're you're a you're a horror guy, aren't you? I'm a, I, I love my horror. I mean, I think it's weird. like a lot of movies. You know, most movies you can watch actually on TV. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's something about a comedy with an audience. You know, what I mean, with a group of strangers like they hear the roar of a laugh in that room. And there's something about a horror movie oh, with yeah. a group of strangers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you hear that scream. Also, they make you feel safe. You know what I mean? Because, yeah. so, you know, like you don't want to feel so huh, in your house alone. <laughs> now you're. <laughs> You know, you're scared to cut off the lights when you go to sleep. <laughs> the timings are the same, right? So the you know the timing yeah. of a the timing of a joke is the same as the timing of a jump scare. Yeah. With Spiral, it's really interesting because there's a uh, without getting into spoilers, obviously, Chris, but there's a a timeliness to the movie in terms of it's it's about police corruption, it's about police brutality. That's really interesting. Was that something that was there from the get go? It was there from the get go. I mean, it's weird that this movie was shot and written everything before George Floyd, before, you know, the protests the last summer. And it's weird. It's really timely. It's unfortunately, it's I wish yeah. I wish when you watch this movie, you just were thinking about, you know, you were in a fantasy world. But. You know, we are it's it's yeah, it's really timely. I mean, hey, I've been in movies before that were ahead of their time. Mm -hmm. So this is a uh, right on time. And hopefully, you know, this uh, advances the discussion of uh, what needs to be done. Yeah. Can you settle something for me as well? I've got a little theory developing in my mind after watching the movie. And, you know, Sam Jackson's in it, obviously. And there are a couple of little references to Pulp Fiction. So there's a there's yeah. a nice... Vincent and Jules background guy at one point. Your right. character is obviously called Ezekiel. I wondered if right, that right, was right. deliberate. I think and it was deliberate. You have to confirm it with Darren. But yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's go with that. And then the the introduction to your character, to Seek, he right. is dissing Forrest Gump. Now, the conspiracy theorist <laughs> to me is saying Forrest Gump is the movie that beat Pulp Fiction at the Oscars controversially. Wow, I, I never thought of that. I never thought of that. It's weird. I just work with Zemeckis. And, um, That's right. I just, That's right. I just worked with Zemeckis, who's <laughs> the nicest guy in the world. I didn't have the heart to tell him that I did a whole Forrest Gump riff <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> I was scared he'd fire me. Get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. Somebody get me Don Cheadle. <laughs> but um no, I didn't think I, I didn't think about the Oscars and all that stuff. I just I'm just I Forrest Gump's one of my favorite movies ever. Okay. And uh and yeah, I just like watching it from every angle. And I'm always fast I'm I'm so fascinated by Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, come on, Jenny. 
<laughs> it's like this guy had everything, but he couldn't get Jenny, man. You couldn't, you know? Yeah. Jenny yeah. was not going to be held down, man. So it comes from a it comes from a place of love, that opening. It comes from an absolute place of love, man. Absolute place of love, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, you can, you know, you only got Jenny when you got her, you know? <laughs> this is true. Done. This is true. So I mean, I've, I've spoken to you in the past and I, I interviewed you and Ben Stiller a few years ago about your love of comedy films and your, you know, and what kind of got you into the business that way. So you got the comedy, you love a comedy, love of horror as well. So you, but what locked you into movies in the first place? Was it, was there something specific way back in the day? I don't know, man. I mean, I, I start off as a stand-up, So that's where yeah. everything starts off with, with me, but stand up, which is great in it, in itself. You know, and I've been able to do it, you know, in a big way. But it is a starting point uh, creatively. So, you know, yeah, it just it naturally leads to movies. It naturally leads to television. It's like, where else can I be funny? Where else can I use this skill? And, um, yeah, I love, you know, hey, man, most artists love art because it erases high school. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> It's like, oh, I can be the leading man now. Oh, I can be the tough guy. Oh, I can get the girl now. You know what I mean? It's just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it's like, oh, it's this is a reality. I actually uh, matter. I rewatched recently. I'm going to get you sucker. Uh, oh, I love that film. And uh, but it had been great. a long time since I seen that movie. And then a very young Chris Rock pops up, and I was like, wow, that's get that's wild. It's a good movie and it's a really smart movie. There's a great scene. There's a scene in I'm Get You Sucker. It's one of my favorite jokes ever in cinema. I think it's one of the smartest things anyone's ever written. It is a scene where Keenan Waynes is looking for revolutionaries to help him take down Mr. Big. And he goes up to Clarence Williams III, who's playing like the guy with the bean pies. And he goes, Where are all the revolutionaries? Where, where are all the fighters? And Clarence Williams III goes, they got government jobs. <laughs> and it's like, it's such a funny joke. It's how almost every revolution has been. It's the easiest way to squash a revolution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just give people it's, a paycheck and that's it. That's it's it. kind of what happened to South Africa. It's kind of what happened in America with all this. You know what I mean? Like a guy like Andrew Young went from being like this revolutionary to like the mayor of Atlanta. You know what I mean? And that's and Marion Barry and all these great revolutionaries got government jobs. And, you know, I'm gonna get you sucker has that joke, like a movie with a pimp of the year with fish <laughs> in the heels of shoes has a joke that astute yeah. and smart is kind of brilliant. That's why I love it. It's, it's, it's all things to all people. It's great. And they got uh, government jobs. <laughs> wow. That is such a fucking great line. And Chris, one of the things I, I, I love watching you for the last few years in particular is that you, it's really hard to pin down what you're going to do next. You know, you're either going to pop up in Spiral or suddenly as Fargo season four. So, you know, is that a strategy or are you taking things that, are, that you know, that you just, oh, you know what? I fancy doing a, I fancy doing a really intense drama or a horror film next that's what i want to do of uh, you know what man i you know what always gets me going what haven't i seen yeah 
what haven't I seen? <laughs> I have two criterias. What haven't I seen? And what haven't I seen a black guy do? <laughs> and whenever I like can find one of those things, I jump all over it. That, that, that's what interests me. So anything I've seen a bunch of people do, I'm like, ah. So, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, com- and, and what haven't I seen a comedian do? That's another thing. So I haven't seen a comedian in like the horror genre. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen like a lot of comedian like far something like Fargo. So yeah, these these are the things that interest me. I just wrote a a movie where the uh, you know the leads a woman. Like you know what I mean? Like so I'm gonna probably direct that in a minute. You know what I mean? I was just about to ask because it's been seven years since since Top Five, which terrifies yeah. me that it's been seven years since Top yeah, Five. Yeah, I know that terrifies me too. I mean. Part of the reason it's been a while because I got divorced afterwards and I needed some money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's important. And directing takes a lot of time, you know, so I had to get to get back into stand up and, you know, and actually, you know, I started getting these great offers. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to direct pretty soon before I go back on tour. So, yeah, it's coming. Fantastic. And then and then Heat. Heat. And then Heat. The remake. Chris Rock. Yeah. How's your Pacino? Can you, can you, you know, how's your, she's got a great ass, you know, or are you just going to do your own thing? I can't wait to do that. (laughs) I cannot wait to hear it. Chris Rock, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much indeed. Oh, thanks a lot. Thank you. Cheers. All right. So that was Chris Rock. And now it is time to delve deep into this week's movie news. Uh, What has been happening, folks? What has been happening in the world of movie news? Fast 9 has been brought forward by two and a half weeks and I, nothing brings me greater joy than the prospect of seeing Fast 9 on the 24th of July. No, 24th of June. 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 Hurrah. It was out on the 9th of July, same day as Black Widow, and now it has moved forward two weeks. And that makes sense, because why would you open two behemoths against each other? It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a perfect decision and it means we can see it earlier. In fact, there have been some press screens in, this, in the States already. I'm furious that people have seen this film and they aren't Fast me. Fast and furious, Helen, or just... <laughs> <laughs> well, I am. Yes, Fast and furious because, you know, I I need to see this. I'm, it's very That's important fair. to me. It's, you know... We have to all watch it together, Helen, so there can be high-fiving. All of us. That is true. There has to be high-fiving. I also look forward to... High-fiving from a socially distanced, you know, with like <laughs> extendable arms, presumably. Yeah. I look forward to walking a quarter of a mile from my house to my local picture house <laughs> Very good. Uh, to go and see this one. I uh, I think one thing we can all appreciate, though, is it has been 10 years since Attack the Block came out, and we're attacking the block again. Hurrah! In Attack the Block 2, Woo-hoo! which was a surprise announcement this week. Sweet. Yeah. And it's it's Joe Cornish back. It's John Boyega going to star again. Um, that's it's super exciting. Completely Lots here more for of those it. little toothy monkey aliens, just like presumably, those yeah, yeah. Or, or different aliens. We don't know, but Who knows? you know, probably the the same toothy monkey aliens, yeah. But yeah, this is exciting. I'm very, very here for more of them, and uh, can't wait to see what happens. Yeah, I have to say, I was surprised not by the timing of the announcement because there have been lots of stirrings around that. You know, they've, Joe's been doing lots of interviews for the 10th anniversary of Attack the Block and has been hinting at sequel stuff. And obviously we reunited him and John Boyega and the rest mm-hmm. of the cast in the most recent issue of Empire. Is that right, Ben? Or is it the one that's just gone off sale? It's the one that's off sale. It's the Tom yeah. Hiddleston issue. So if you have a copy okay. of that and you haven't read it yet, go and check it out. It's also now on empireonline.com. Yes, you can check it out right now, and uh, it's it's a cracking read. And so they've been talking about doing Attack the Block, but uh, he's in 
pre-production, I think, on a TV show called Lockwood & Co. Uh, he's also attached to direct an adaptation of Mark Miller's Starlight. And, and now here comes Attack the Block 2. Now, what was interesting about this announcement was that it was very clearly announced as being in development. So I don't know what stage they are at mm. yet. I don't know whether it's a script or whether this is just something that they've been talking about once the lines of communication were reopened between Joe and, and John and, you know, whoever else is going to come back from the rest of the cast because, you know, I think John's the one whose star has been shining brightest. But I wonder if anyone else is going to return. You know, will Jodie Whittaker make a reappearance? Will Nick Frost make a reappearance? Who knows? But uh, yeah, very, very exciting stuff. Twitter was a buzz with, with anticipation for this one. Yeah. yeah, it feels like the stature of that film. Um, I mean, it was always kind of a big hit here. I remember seeing it the day it came out in the UK and it was very much like, oh, Joe Cornish's first film and produced by Edgar Wright. And it was in that kind of post Short of the Dead, Hot Fuzz kind of cool upcoming British directors making fun genre things. Boom. So it's always been kind of a big deal here, but I think especially in the States, it's become quite a bit of a bigger deal in recent years after obviously John Boyega appeared in the Star Wars movies and, and people started to kind of latch on to the fact that, hey, he's in this really good British sci-fi movie that never really got a huge showing in the US mm. uh, that he made years before Star Wars even happened. Um, so I think its stature kind of worldwide has grown a lot in that time. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting thing to do as well because the the world and, and the UK has changed a lot in those 10 years as well. Like when the first film came out, it was all the discourse around hoodies. And obviously there's been a lot going on uh, in terms of like race relations in the UK and and beyond in that time. So I'm really fascinated to see how they evolve those characters, push things forward, because one of the joys of that film for me is that it's a really great, fun, exciting action sci-fi movie, but I do mm-hmm. think the, the social commentary in it stands up pretty well. Indeed. Yeah. So I think it's still very early days yet with this one, but let's keep an eye on Attack the Block 2, uh, another much-anticipated sequel. We were talking about the Knives Out 2 casting news last week, and uh, as listeners of last week's episode will know that uh, at via a very, very obvious overdub, I anticipated the news of Catherine Hans casting in that movie, <laughs> uh, but the rest of you guys haven't had a chance to respond to that, so two new names added to the cast of Ryan Johnson's Knives Out 2 this week, Catherine Hahn and Leslie Odom Jr. Now, he's the damn fool who shot him, surely. (laughs) Take my money and also, for God's sake, make it a musical. I know we've done the like, oh, it's in Greece, it's going to be Mamma Mia, but seriously, Catherine Hahn can sing. Leslie Odom Jr., he can Can really sing. sing. Janelle Monae, oh my God, she can (laughs) sing. Edward Norton, who knows? Dave Bautista can probably sing. He can do everything else. It's fine. Yeah, he, he could just do a full on Lee Marvin and paint your wagon yes. and just kind of uh, was born under a wandering star. I mean, it is clever casting the two of them this week. Was it as as you say, you know, the, it was Leslie Odom Jr. the damn fool who shot him, or was it Agatha, was it Agatha, all, Agatha along? all along? Like it's just you know, <laughs> it keeps us guessing by ca- by casting the two of them by releasing that news close together. You know, keeps us on our toes, which is fantastic. So this is cool. This is like a cast. This is like a cast of ne'er do wells. You have the most famous small screen villain of recent months, certainly, and Catherine mm. Hahn, and then you have um, Leslie Odom Jr., who's Aaron Burr, who killed mm. Lin Manuel Miranda for the love of God. I mean, that's that just bastard. It's that it's, it's, mother it's all misdirection. It's going to be Michael Palin, and I think we all know it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Michael, he does love a trip abroad. He loves a trip abroad. There's the thing, you could, get, you could get Michael Palin. You go, Michael, I've got a great job for you. It involves travel. You can make a documentary. And you're going to love this, Michael. It involves murder. And then Michael would be like, <laughs> yes, please. Michael Impalin is on his way. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> Uh, and that's this week's joke that I'm running into the ground. Yeah, so. it's, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. There we go. Like, he was like the one person in, in Death of Stalin who didn't, like, commit mass murder while we were watching, you know. That's how that nice we it saw. is. That we yeah. saw. That we saw. Do you know yeah. what that is, Helen? That's misdirection. Yeah. yeah. Mm, okay. Anywho. Anywho. Uh, yeah, Leslie Odom Jr., fantastic. Catherine Hahn, fantastic. Just make this movie now, please, and, and just inject it directly into my eyes. Yes. It's so great. I keep forgetting that Daniel Craig is in there as well. We're going to not just get to see all these guys play off each other, but playing off against Benoit Blanc, oh, that's going to be so much fun. It's going to be so much fun. I can't, cannot wait. Hey, speaking of things I cannot wait for, there's going to be a Cher biopic. <laughs> <laughs> made by the people who made Mamma Mia, Judy Kramer. Yeah, yeah and, and Gary Gutzman, who, who got her into Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, where she is the best five minutes of that film, and it's not even close. Yeah, Eric Roth is working on the script. It will chart her life. That's all we know. I don't care uh, anything else. I'm sold. I'm there. I'm in it. I'm hoping she will play herself. You're in it. I'm, I'm not in it. I wish I was in it. Um, she will play herself uh, in my eyes, ideally. If she could mm. turn back time. Yes. If she could find a way. She looks the same. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, she could play herself at any age yeah. right now. Yeah. yeah. She is She is the eighth wonder of the world, and I love her, and I'm just just incredibly amused and here for this. She's, I hope she's it's amazing. entirely about the making of mermaids. Honestly, that film is... Like, I love that film to an unreasonable degree. I just adore it. I can still recite bits of it. I just think it's amazing. If you haven't seen Mermaids, people, go out and see Mermaids. It's Cher playing the uh, outrageous single mother of uh, Winona Ryder and Christina Ricci and uh, having a love affair with Bob Hoskins. It's unbelievably great. What if it's a film about Cher meeting her doppelganger and it's called Cher and Cher alike? <laughs> like my screen name today. <laughs> oh, hey! I haven't hey. noticed that. There we go. Fantastic. Didn't notice that. Can't sue me. You can't sue me. No, I can't because I, I, I stole it from a Twitter user. So I did that joke on Twitter a few years ago. I had to scour Google's image search for ages before I found a picture of Cher with a Cher lookalike. It took me ages to do it. And eventually, I was like, it's got to have happened, right? Over the years, Cher has got to have, at some point in her life, had a photograph taken <laughs> with someone dressed as Cher. It's got to have happened. And lo and behold, like page 11 of my Google image search, I found it. Hallelujah. The lengths you'll go to to flog a joke today. <laughs> Good Lord. The ultimate pick is, of course, the drag queen Chad Michaels, who is the ultimate number one Cher impersonator. All over RuPaul's Drag Race, Chad Michaels. What a legend. <laughs> What a legend. Uh, that's very, very exciting indeed. Well done, everybody. Um, yep. Indiana Jones 5 has cast some new people. So Boyd Holbrook and Seanette Renee Wilson from The Resident uh, are going to star alongside Harrison Ford and Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Meds Mickelson. I've been told by a Danish uh, listener to the podcast, we've been pronouncing Mads Mickelson's I, name. I you've got full lethal weapon too there. <laughs> yes. Meds. <laughs> so apparently, apparently it's close to mess. Ah, Mess. Mess Mickelson. But that okay. doesn't help my, you don't have to be mads to work here, but it helps joke. So I'm leaning back towards the mads thing, you know, but I guess we want to get it right. Also, joke, 
accuracy joke accuracy mm. who knows it's a tough, a tough are, are there any franchises that meds mads mass mickelson is not involved in he's he's done bond he's done star wars he's in indie now he's the new grindelwald like yeah he's everywhere look yeah. i mean this is not something we complain about this is good mcu didn't even you know he's yeah he's obviously yes. Caecilius. Caecilius. Yeah. Caecilius. Yeah. he is as the kids say booked and busy he yeah. really is slapped bond's balls and then some uh in, and, and in he Casino is the Royale. bitch who has rihanna's money he literally slaps. Yeah. Clash of the Titans and big Liverpool fan, apparently. So wow. well done him. Well done, everybody. Is this everybody. Scouse? <laughs> <laughs> Find out. Next time you're on the show, Ben, you can tell yeah. me. I'll Google it and then I'll bring that as my fact. <laughs> Matt Mickelson's mum is not Scouse. <laughs> uh, anyway, so Boyd Holbrook and Jeanette Renee Wilson are going to be in Indiana Jones 5, which is, of course, written and directed by Jim Mangold. So Boyd Holbrook was in Logan. So I guess he must have, they must have got on well. They must be, they must have impressed him. Uh, I wonder if Boyd Holbrook might be a badden or perhaps what? they've just recast Mutt completely and oh, just God. ignored, you know. Oh, God, I hope Mutt's not in this movie. <laughs> I, hope the, I hope the movie begins with a shot of Mutt's gravestone. <laughs> Mutt died on the way to his home planet. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't know who you're talking about. And the dog's name is Indiana, so I'm that's not sure true. who this mutt is. That's weird. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. Um, anything else? We should mention we had uh, trailers this week for a whole bunch of stuff. I want to particularly talk about two of the musical trailers. Uh-huh. Uh, first up is the Jennifer Hudson Aretha Project, Respect. I haven't seen it. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, really good cast. Like People like Audra McDonald as her mum. Happy days. On board with that. Mary J. Blige is in there. Ooh. Yes, sold. I'm I'm really torn about these battling Arethas though, because obviously Cynthia Revo is doing the the TV version as well. Yeah, I'm super duper here for hearing both their takes on Aretha, but she's so distinctive, and at the moment it just sounds like, you know, Cynthia Revo sings Aretha, which I'm here for, but like it's a completely different experience than Aretha herself. Jennifer Hudson is a little bit more similar to her, I would say, in voice, and she's clearly kind of mimicking some of Aretha's style. But I don't know if that will actually be more distracting or less. So I'm really intrigued to see how that goes with both of them. But anyway, mm. Aretha is out. And then there is the new trailer for Dear Evan Hansen, oh, which yeah. won the Tony the year after Hamilton. For my money, it is a far inferior musical. I did not love it. There's a couple of great songs though, and it might well connect. There is a there is a big fandom there that that this film is going to appeal to because the Broadway lead Ben Platt is also playing the title role here. There's been a lot of mm. f- people making fun of the fact that he looks older than a teenager. I didn't think he massively did, if I'm honest. I thought he looks quite old. He looks... It's not. We're not talking Stockard Channing in Greece. No. <laughs> here. But we're not talking Tom Holland yeah. in Spider-Man Homecoming, no. where it's like, yeah. oh, God, you, you are a teenager. Yeah. We're not a million miles away from how do you do, fellow kids, which is the <laughs> concern yeah. with this. That is the risk. But he's... Yeah, I mean, it doesn't help that he's there next to, you know, younger person, Caitlin Deaver and people like that, but um, yeah. Amy Adams as well. It's a good cast. Um, as I say, the musical's popular with people who aren't me. And uh, as you as you listen to the trailer, it will not astound you to know that these are, yes, the people who wrote The Greatest Showman. You can actually hear similar melodies mm. in there. So, you know, again, that might pick up a lot of... Um, a lot of fans for this. That might be an appeal to people, or it might be a huge, big old red flag for others. Uh, I haven't seen the musical yet, so I'm I'm intrigued to see what this one is going to be like. Me neither. The plot of this one sounds weird as it's well. Mad. It's, it yeah, seems stranger, a stranger sort of plot than I was expecting, and kind of 
darker and weirder. The, the hook for me is that um, Stephen Chbosky is directing, and I think I actually really rate his Perks of Being a Wallflower yeah. film, obviously yeah. adapting his own book, and he has form with darker teen stories that touch on quite serious issues. Uh, so I'm hoping that he does something good with this. Yeah, no, me too. And Look, it, it could be great. I'm just saying that the stage show I thought was... Um, not brilliant, and I. But I may be prejudiced because it did beat Groundhog Day, which, as we all know, <gasps> is oh, fucking oh, incredible burn and should have fucking won. ground. There you go. Same. If they had their time again, they should have voted for Groundhog Day. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and we should also mention Batgirl. The Bad Boys for Life directors Adil El Arbi and Bilal Falah are directing the DC adaptation. Um, this has obviously been in development for a little bit of time, but Birds of Prey writer Christina Hodgson, Hodgson is uh, is working on the script, and um, it it sounds fun. So apparently, they the producer says we hope to take the audience on a fun ride and see a different side of Gotham. Wow, um, that's, that's no one's a, ever said that in a press release before. Wow, <laughs> yeah, but I'll, honestly, the fun side of Gotham is genuinely not something we've heard a lot about in no, the last few years. But so, it's got you to know. have a fun side, right? Otherwise, why would people live there? I guess, yeah. And apparently Christina's script is crackling with spirit and the two directors have an excited and joyous energy, which is infectious, which, I mean, that's unfortunate <laughs> language in a time of pandemic, but, um, huh. you know. I love those Yay. guys. I, I, I'm a big fan of Bad Boys for Life. I'm I'm here for Bad Girls for Life. And uh, they were great when they did the Sporting Special uh, with me last year as well. So that they're a lot of fun. So yes, well done. Yes, yes, absolutely. They've just done two episodes of Biz Marvel as well, so they have form in terms of superhero stuff with teen girl heroes well up for it. Let's finish off the news section with some very, very sad news. Yes, we lost a great Charles Grodin this week at the age of 86. You know, he was in films like the original The Heartbreak Kid. He was in the Beethoven movies, of course. He was in Ivan Reitman's Dave. He was fantastic in mm, that as well. Yeah. He was the bad guy in the the best King Kong, the 1976 remake, oh, uh, of course. Uh, he was a tremendous, very sardonic screen presence. He was fantastic at deadpan comedy. Uh, he was in a film I really, really like called, uh, well, he was in Albert Brooks's directorial debut, Real Life, which is really good if you haven't seen that. Uh, but he was in a film I really love with uh, Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn called Seems Like Old Times, uh, where he was um, he was like the third wheel in their romantic triangle. Can you have a third wheel in a triangle? You can now. Uh, he was great in that. But for me, and for many, many people, uh, an astonishing outpouring of love when he passed away. Mm. He is Jonathan the Duke Marducus in Midnight Run, one of the greatest movies ever made. And uh, he was cast in that ahead of, they wanted Cher, would you believe? They wanted Cher, really? they wanted Robin Williams. The studio wanted wow. like a really comedic, sparky presence, someone who would be a real oddball. Um, and the director, Martin Brest, fought them on that. And he went, no, I want Chuck Grodin, who is weird and idiosyncratic and will really needle Robert De Niro and really get under his skin and you can absolutely see it there's there's mm. moments in that where you're just feeling that you know Charles Grodin is just basically <laughs> just running wild and, and being very much himself I love that movie so much he was so terrific in it yeah he's so good he's also in The Great Muppet Caper I think he's oh my god uh, crushing on Miss Piggy and believably as well and also I was watching after he died a lot of people were talking about his many 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 appearances on David Letterman's show oh. and um, and so I went back and watched a bunch of those clips and they're hilarious there's one bit where he, he claimed that uh, Letterman had had mm -hmm. libeled him the week before and brought his lawyer in to protect him against Letterman and his lawyer was completely ineffectual but it was it's one of the funniest chat show bits I think I've ever seen he was he was absolutely 
absolutely incredible. But yeah, yeah I, I I grew up with him, you know, in, in things really? like Beethoven and not literally Chris. Oh, um, watching him in things like Beethoven and Dave. Um, but uh, it's been it's been a delight as I've gotten older to discover things like the Heartbreak Kid, mm. um, where he is fucking incredible. Yeah, he's amazing. Get On seems like old times, although it's been a long time since I've seen it. But I just remember loving that film when I was when I was growing up. Um, Neil Simon wrote it. Really, really good stuff. Seems like old times. But yeah, it's Midnight Run. It's Midnight yeah, Run. It is That's Midnight. where all the great lines people were commemorating him with this week. And there's no line more apt than, see you in the next life. So there you go. See you in the next life, Charles Grodin, who passed away this week at the age of 86. Time now for our second and final guest this week. It's Ripley. Jimbo, it's Ripley. It you is. must be excited about that. I'm the Alien Queen's nemesis. Yes. <laughs> Back again. The great Sigourney Weaver is the star of this week's My New York Year, which is called My Salinger Year in the States. came out last year. So if people think this plot sounds familiar, it's because it's the same film in which she plays a publisher who takes Margaret Qualley under her wing. And uh, Margaret Qualley has to contend with the publisher's star client, who is the famously reclusive author J.D. Salinger author of The Catcher in the Rye, and they they form a fun and sparky and spiky relationship over the course of, you guessed it, her New York year. Uh, so Sigourney Weaver, legend, genius, mm. philanthropist, billionaire. <laughs> had the great pleasure of talking to her recently uh, over Zoom. Yes, the dread Zoom. She was on her iPad. I was not. Uh, but nevertheless, we talked about my New York year, about her storied career and about working with Jim Cameron on Avatar and looking forward as well to Avatar 2. How exciting. Do please enjoy. How's it going? How's it going? Oh, it's great. I'm, I'm so excited to be talking to England. <laughs> and uh, believe me, England is very excited to be talking to you. So it's, where are you? Uh, I'm in Greenwich. Oh, that's so pretty. I've been there. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lovely, lovely place right by the river. That's where I am yeah. at the moment. So it's uh, it's not oh. bad. It's not bad at all. What about what about yourself? Well, actually, I'm by a river too. I'm by the East River, looking out sort of at the 59th Street Bridge, Midtown, and it's a kind of grey day with this sort of you know East River sort of flows in and out, and now it's going out. How has your pandemic been, Sigourney? Well, you know, I was at the Berlin Festival with our wonderful film, My Salinger Year, and mm-hmm. the cast and uh, Philippe Pallardo and, and the beautiful Margaret Squally. And then, uh, honestly, the lights sort of went out kind of just a few days afterward. Uh, yeah. And I, I was traveling with my daughter, uh, my grown daughter and my husband. And we were so lucky because it happened when we were together. So we all came back to New York and hid ourselves in our apartment and just, you know, like everyone, tried to make sense of something that was impossible to make sense of. And, um, you know, in New York City, we were hit pretty hard in the beginning. Mm. And um, we're still very grateful to the governor, despite the hot water he's in, for at least telling us the truth about what was going on. You know, I think that got us through. And then, you know, I had time, I really don't take that much time off, I guess, to have time to reread War and Peace and Anna Karenina and (laughs) other things like this. And a lot of uh, English uh, women writers um, whose names I won't be able to remember, but they're all such good books. And, um, And then just sort of, you know, trying to throw your energy and love out 
into, you know, we're right between three hospitals. So it was so quiet in the city. Streets were empty. I've never seen it like that. And yet we heard the sirens going because we're near the, the hospitals. And, um, and of course, at seven o'clock, we also in our neighborhood were leaning out the windows and, and hitting a pans with, with wooden spoons to, and cheering for the, for the very hardworking and courageous uh, health workers who were flowing out of the hospitals in the shift. It must be strange as well to be, to be talking still about my Salinger year, a year after you were at the Berlin yes. Film Festival. But uh, of course, over here, it's called my New York year. Yeah. It wasn't filmed in New York, though, Sigourney. It was more of a Montreal month view, is my understanding. Yes. I mean, they did some exteriors in New York, yeah. um, but for the most part, they found this wonderful old Art Deco building right off a square. And we had the greatest art direction. Um, all the departments were run by women, which is very unusual, but we had a woman producer, mm -hmm. Kim McGraw, who insisted on it. And so everyone was working at the top of their game. And it was just a lovely, lovely experience with Philippe, who's very, very funny and um, very, very open and adores actors. And he'd written this beautiful script and it, we had this great ensemble. So in, in many ways, it was just a dream job. Are you someone who, and I don't know whether this has changed for you over the years, are you someone who immerses yourself in, in life in a, in a city whenever you, uh, you go to film a movie there? For example, I was thinking today about what life must have been like for you back in... 78, when you were over in London filming Alien, were you soaking up London? Were you soaking up the sides or were you very much focused on this massive movie and on this, on, on this huge break for you? Well, you know, one of the things I discovered, because I'd done so much theatre, especially mm. downtown, where it's a very convivial life. You know, after each show, you go out together and you sort of carouse and, um, and you're really a family. And what I found in film is that um, everyone goes back to their own family. And um, I was, you know, alone and, and single. So uh, so I really kind of kept to myself. I, I had a couple of good friends here um, mm -hmm. and I did walk around London and I did go up to the Lake District, which is very exciting. <laughs> um, but for the most part, I, you know, I was on every second and um, I felt I needed for one thing to recover so I had enough energy to run from the streams of fire that Ridley would, you know, spray at me and make me run from one thing to another. Um, you know, um, I, I think I needed to recover each weekend and, um, and be fresh on Monday to sort of give it my all. <laughs> so when did you uh, when did you wind up in Greenwich, Sigourney? Uh, was it uh, you know did you just naturally gravitate here? Uh, you know, come here on. Weekends off. I wanted to see where Greenwich time originated, mm -hmm. and I was not disappointed. You know that that clock they have, and the yeah. you know all the different time zones and everything. And I felt it was so thrilling, like going to the equator or something. And um, I think I went with my husband when we were first married. We were often over in um, London. Maybe it was when I was doing Aliens, perhaps. Um, yes. But we did make that trip. But but these days, in terms of you, you talk about this movie and this character, who's a really fascinating character, Margaret. In in my, I'm going to keep calling it my New York year. Sigourney, apologies for that. But um, that's fine. 
uh, Margaret in this movie is one of those characters who has such a formidable exterior and there's a warmer center underneath. Is that, you know, is she, did she remind you of someone that you knew as you were coming up in the business? Did you have a, a Margaret growing up, a, a sort of mentor figure? Um, you know, I have met uh, people in the business who, like I was very close to Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy. I wouldn't call either of them formidable, but um, <laughs> but they they were, you know, close friends and certainly mentored me and are a constant inspiration. I often think, what would Jesse do in this situation? <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, uh, Margaret is interesting because, you know, in those days, and this is the tail end of them, literature was king in New York. And mm. um, and it was you know, all about Joseph Heller and Kurt Vonnegut and Norman Mailer. And I mean, they were the true celebrities then. And really, the city was much more about art and and um, literature and um, and just what kind of, you know, what kind of uh, fun you could generate around yourself it really wasn't about success and pushing and um, and ambition. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of. Uh, a kind of homage to that New York that I remember, which was sort of, you know, hanging out in bars and going to restaurants, three martini lunches, and just <laughs> this very flamboyant woman who dressed to the nines. And I have to acknowledge Anne Roth, who's an old friend of mine. She came in and did my costumes and put that crazy yellow sweater over my blue caftan and all this, you know, she's so brilliant. She's nominated for Ma Rainey uh, for costume. She's 89 now. Wow. So I would say Anne Roth is, is someone I look up to and inspired by very, very much. But, but uh, Margaret has always been, was lo- like those women. I, I remember being around when I was growing up who were just, nothing could stop them. And they were so charming mm-hmm. uh, and they were steely and they, you know, they wouldn't take any nonsense. Um, I think actually Margaret is more vulnerable than that because I yes. think she senses her world is fading and she she struggles even harder to keep it upright, not allowing the digital madness to enter the office. <laughs> yes, I, I love that about her. I love that uh, how sort of uh, how she's almost proud of being a Luddite in terms of her attitude towards technology. Of course, you're, you're talking to me on your iPad, so this is clearly something you do not share with Margaret. Well, no, but I've had to learn this year. I've yeah. never done a Zoom before in my life. <laughs> now I know what lighting is. I know how to do my own hair and makeup. You know, I'm, I'm like ready to have a, a different kind of career. <laughs> and I have a tremendous uh, appreciation for all those people I've worked with who've helped me with all that because they're, you know, it's great to have to be part of a team. And so uh, it's strange to be by yourself or with your husband and daughter. And, you know, they're kind of not very interested in (laughs) (laughs) making the lighting good for your Zoom. It's like, oh, God, Uh, I had to get self-sufficient very quickly. I had the the good fortune recently of, of interviewing Jim Cameron. uh, Oh, did you? For the magazine. And he was, yeah, he was down there in New Zealand and he was just waiting, I think, to resume production on on the many Avatar yeah. sequels that are going over there. Yeah. Um, I presume your your Avatar experience, are you in the middle of it? Are you? Uh, was it interrupted by the pandemic? Well, you know, it turned out 
that Jim wrote four more avatars. <laughs> so we did. <laughs> he had to. I, I understand it, having read them. It's a huge emotional arc of yeah. the story. And, you know, in spite of his reputation as being, you know, wonderful action, et cetera, it's really about the, the story. That's what he really cares about. And um, so we did two and three already. And he's still working on two, which I think will come out maybe, did he say Christmas 22 to you? I believe, yes, I believe that is the plan. Yeah. And then, um, and a lot of that is underwater. So we had to learn how to free dive and all of that. My goodness, it was very exciting. And then, um, and then a couple of years later, I think maybe the next year, three will come out. But we do have to all go back when he's got a minute and... <laughs> Shoot four and five together, and then they will come out separately. I, I, I don't even think about that. You know, I feel very fortunate because I feel like people are, or movie makers, are understanding that uh, characters who are older women mm -hmm. bring a great deal to any story, and yeah. that we're naturally fascinating. And so I feel like, um, you know, with women directors, women writers, um, everything is changing now, and. So I'm getting most wonderful work. You know, I'm very grateful. I'm all over the place. And it's, it's very exciting. And I think, yes, it's about, you know, the older woman getting a voice now in yeah. movies. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's tremendous. I mean, yeah, clearly he, he feels that way about, you know, about, about Grace and Avatar, because last time I checked, Sigourney, you died in the first movie. So the fact that he's brought you back, however he brings you back, uh, well, the I'm fact a that he has. Okay. I'm a different character. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, well, let's let's bring you back then to uh, to New York uh, for my Salinger year. You know, this movie is obviously about fandom in a way, and the nature of fandom, and how people can be inspired by great art. JD Salinger, of course, in this case, and how they can feel a connection to the artist, and that must be something that you have experienced over the years with people complimenting you and connecting to to your work was that something did you find that and was it something that was difficult to initially get to grips with well i think i'm still astounded by what ripley has meant to people and i'm very glad because i think ripley is you know a great sort of everyman character and she was really written as a man she didn't ever have a scene where she burst into tears or anything they that's the way they used to write women in those days so I'm glad she has longevity, and I, I'm grateful beyond anything that, that she touches young women. And, um, you know, that's, I, I don't think it has much to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's all to do with the character and those, those movies, but I'm glad they've been as empowering as they have. But, you know, talking about the movie, the way Philippe has you meet the fans, Yeah. I don't know about you, but I completely connected with the fans. Yeah. Um, not with J.D. Salinger. I mean, I have been that person writing letters and, um, you know, you feel this tremendous connection with the writer and, and, and it, it, it was so wonderful to have that made come true in the movie. I thought he handled it so beautifully and it's so poignant. Mm. But I have to, I have to ask as well, Sigourney, you mentioned there that you, you, you used to write letters. Who did you write letters to? Well, this is embarrassing, but um, I'm, I probably wrote a couple of writers. I'm not sure, but I know I did write something like a six-page letter on 
violet stationery covering both sides of each page uh, when I was 13 to John Lennon. <laughs> I remember perfuming the letter. I remember writing in sort of purple ink. And I um, left it at a restaurant that I heard he went to. And I never heard anything back, of course. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, it was still a wonderful, it was so exciting to me to write the letter and think of every word and pour my heart out. And um, the fact that he didn't write back, yeah, I mean, it was unlikely that he would. And anyway, I'm a little embarrassed now, obviously. (laughs) But but, um, it was the act of reaching out to the writer and or, or the the artist is is I think such an, a wonderful thing you can do. And nowadays, I guess you can email them or go to their website, or you know, you can. Every book seems to have. If you want to reach out to you know whoever, you know, send an email to this. So no way of avoiding your fan mail now. <laughs> and of course, there's there's Twitter and Instagram where you can. Oh my God! You can ask no direct Margaret questions. Keeping all that out. <laughs> The last thing I wanted to ask you, and I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up John Lennon, actually, because when I was thinking about this movie and it's it's what it says about fandom and that inspiration and that connection that it can sometimes engender, I thought about that famous pic that, you know, that, that came out a few years ago of you watching the Beatles as a teenager. Oh, gosh, yes. And, yeah. uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm also a huge fan of the Beatles. I, I had to ask whether you, your love for the band has endured over the years and whether you've actually met any of the fab four. Well, I think I've met um, Ringo and I think I've met Paul. Uh, I never <laughs> got to meet John. I was really in love with John. Yeah. I read that he used to make sandwiches for VIPs at the airport and he used to put his shoe in them and then close them up for some reason at, at, <laughs> 12, I thought that was the most exciting pirate-like thing I'd ever heard. And, uh, you know, he was sort of a revolutionary, John. And I thought it was interesting the way we, it is a part of our story, too. The protection of J.D. Salinger, um, you know, has a lot to do with Chapman's murder of John Lennon. Yeah. But I did, actually, I did, after that famous concert at the Hollywood Bowl, I was walking in that sort of there was a kind of green area uh, between the the road. I can't remember uh, which road it was in L.A. Mm-hmm. I was walking with a girl I met and they came around the corner in their limo and they drove slowly right by us. And I can't show it to you, but they all gave a different wave. <laughs> and I, yeah, I went home and I lay down on my bed for about. 48 hours just in shock that I had been that close to them. They'd seen us and waved at us. It was like unbelievable. I can still feel here my heart going pit-a-pat. It was so exciting. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Sigourney, I have to say, I love that your life has been so packed with incredible uh, incidents that you think you've met Paul and you think you've met Ringo, because <laughs> that would be burned Not into my yet. brain. I'm pretty sure I've met Ringo. I'm, I've met uh, Paul's daughter. Um, okay. But you know they're in our hearts, so you, you feel like you know them. You feel like you know them indeed. Uh, well, fantastic. Sigourney, it's been an absolute pleasure once again. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Well, pleasure for me too. Take care. You too. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was Sigourney Weaver, and we will be talking about my New York year in just a few minutes, because now it is time for the reviews section of the show. 
And now the cinemas have reopened, folks. Cinemas have reopened in this country, and it is a glorious, glorious thing. This week I was back in a cinema for the first time in a while. Hurrah. Saw two films in one day, like the mm. Crowded House song predicted, and it, it it was belting. It was absolutely belting to be back in a cinema. I haven't been with regular folks yet. I haven't been with a paying crowd. Those were both screenings. I have. I went to see Singing in the Rain at the Prince Charles on Monday, and it was glorious. What a wonderful feeling. I'm happy again, you know? Oh. I went to see Godzilla vs. Kong on Monday night with a massive box of popcorn, and it was an absolute joy. The cinema was freezing. There was barely anyone there. They literally forgot to press play for the first 20 <laughs> minutes. So I had to go down and be like, there's nothing happening in screen one. And they went, oh shit, <laughs> and ran and put the film on. And it was still one of the best things that's ever happened to me. <laughs> Amazing. So good. Amazing. Jimbo, have you had the uh, the pleasure yet? I did. I went to a screening of A Quiet Place 2, uh, which was lovely. At the, it was just, just, just literally a small handful of us at the giant IMAX Leicester Square, and it was glorious. I had a massive tub of popcorn, felt, and then a massive tub of popcorn, and then realised about five minutes in, this was the worst possible film to get a massive tub of popcorn. So <laughs> yeah, I had to eat no. it really quietly and let the kernels dissolve in my mouth because any kind of crunch would be heard by everyone, and I'd get frowned at. But. I have to say, no, I also went to a press screening of that and they very kindly gave us some snacks at the press screening, but they gave us marshmallows. Now, yes, that is about the right food for that that's movie. That's right. Anyway, this is a conversation for another day because yeah, we're not even yeah. reviewing that No wrappers, no crunches. We're not, we're not. So anyway, because we were back in cinemas this week, naturally we're going to start the review section with a film that is on Netflix. And only on Netflix, <laughs> although you can see it in cinemas in the States. And who knows? I'm going to check, actually, whilst, whilst uh, Jimbo's banging on about this. It is, of course, <laughs> Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead, the second Zack Snyder movie of the year. Uh, and this is his return to the zombie action horror genre. Yeah. I'm psyched. I'm pumped. I'm hyped. Jimbo Dyer, should I be? Well, the thing is, like, obviously, this, is, this was most of our first encounters with... Uh with Zack Snyder, 2004, Dawn of the Dead, which is fucking brilliant. Like, it's not as, like, it's a bit more on the nose than Romero's kind of anti-capitalist one, but it's so good. It was like the Aliens version of of the zombie film, and I loved it. So the thought of him coming back to this genre filled me with absolute unbelievable joy. Uh, and when this film starts, there was a three-minute three kind of montage scene-setting prologue, and I would argue that... There is nothing in the world more Zack Snyder than these three minutes of cinema. It's super slick. It's <laughs> slow-mo. It's just incredible. It's like a visual feast. It's like Zombieland meets the Dead Rising video games. It's funny. It's crazy. And the whole thing is setting up the idea that, because reasons, a zombie is unleashed in Las Vegas. <laughs> Everyone gets bitten and turned into zombies. Las Vegas turns into a complete war zone. And normal, unassuming people, because most normal, unassuming people look like Dave Bautista, wandering around their average days, are turned into unlikely heroes. They are forced to battle the undead, and they carve out names for themselves. So you've got, like, Amari Hardwick, who gets this massive, great, big fucking angle grinder and starts grinding up undead with that. Uh, Dave Bautista... It's basically Dave Bautista. Uh, and they are, you know, shooting zombies in the head. And and this sets that up, that they emerge from this thing as heroes. Then Las Vegas is walled off from the rest of the country. And these guys come out and rejoin society. And, you know, they're lauded, whatnot. But they all sort of drift into what seems like menial jobs, unfortunately. Uh, and when Hiroyuki Sonada comes out uh, and says he will pay them to go back into Las Vegas, into the infected zone, to pull off a heist to get $200 million from a casino, they could all use the cash and they go, sure, why not? So they head back in to do that. Now, 
the thing with this film is like those first three minutes are really, really good. And it was a tone I wasn't expecting because I thought this might be very Dawn of the Dead. So quite serious, quite scary, like heavy on the scares and horror. And those first three minutes are all style and comedy. And I thought, wow, this is going to be a completely different thing. Unfortunately, the film doesn't follow that template. It's neither the kind of horror of... I would say Dawn of the Dead, nor the kind of style of that prologue. And it hits, I thought, a slightly mechanical pace after that. It's very Zack Snyder in that it's also two and a half hours long. It is way too long for what it is. But that's not to say it's bad. Like It has great action sequences. He definitely knows how to put action together. And I really commend the fact that he did some interesting things with this. Like He tries to do something different with the zombie mythology. And when we kind of live in a post-Walking Dead world zombies can feel a bit tired and he does try to do something different my worry was with this it felt a little bit half-baked and yes i know there's a sequel and there's an anime spin-off and i'm sure the mythology will be properly explored but i felt a lot like it was lacking in this there were a couple of the kernels back to that again the kernels of nice ideas but they they weren't properly expanded on and i felt a bit cheated by that that said lots of really good action in this i thought it was fun tignataro i think is you know for a late edition was one of the best things in it but i thought it could have been a lot more i thought it could have been half an hour shorter and i thought it could have had more punch to it i'll be honest with you i, I kind of agree with james i thought the the opening of this promised something really stylish really cool mm. really different and then the rest of the film just feels very been there done that actually yeah. in a weird way which in a way that i was not expecting from him i expected it to feel much more unique and, and interesting and weird i mean as as john points out in our review you know train to be sand peninsula did the same mm. heist from zombies thing already very recently which is of course unfortunate there's no way to predict that kind of thing but but at the same time i i personally hate the kind of the, this idea and this is not a spoiler it's in the trailer of a sort of semi zombie civilization almost or at least some kind of zombie thought processes that to me undermines the entire point and i realize that there are, you know there's some kind of explanation here there's some kind of mythology here but that to me is not zombies that's a totally different thing and i don't think you should confuse the two actually personally had an i hey. am legendy vibe to it do you know what i mean yeah it did but then i am legend is you know, in its original book form, very, yeah. very, very smart about that. And this is. is is not, I think, quite smart. And I think when it does try to be political, it uh, is silliest in, and not in a good way. <laughs> uh, there is a character who uses a temperature gun uh, in a way that is all too familiar to all of us right now, um, mm. but it plays very, very badly in in terms of what I think he's trying to say here uh, in the context of the current moment and could easily have been cut without any effort whatsoever. That was shot pre-pandemic. Yeah, no, it was. But that's what I mean. Uh, given the way it plays now, it could easily have been cut and you wouldn't have lost anything from that character. So I just had lots of little niggles with it. I did think that some of the action was great. I did think that some of the characters were a lot of fun in this sort of, you know, genre template. Um, I, I, I just, I, I thought overall, I wanted more from it than it gave me. That's yeah, all. same here. Same here. Well, Yabu sucks to you both. I thought it was true. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've been anticipating this one for a while, mm. and I, I will say as well, I was on set, I wrote the Empire feature, so I'm, I should recuse myself from uh, this review for, for the most part. Um, you know, and I've I've gone on the record in the podcast before saying that, you know, I expected this to be the greatest movie ever made. Incredibly, <laughs> it didn't live up to my expectations. Wow. But oh, gosh. I, I watched it, I think I, I finished it about two in the morning the other night because I, I couldn't watch it before a certain point because I was too busy. Uh, but it held my attention all the way through, even though I was propping my eyes up with matchsticks uh, at certain points. Uh, I think it's, 
it's doing some really interesting things. I'm not sure yet whether we're going to be doing a spoiler special. So there's things we can't get into here, obviously. But there, there are interesting things I think it's doing in that it's playing with the idea of almost being a cover version of other movies. So if you listen, you listen to the soundtrack of the film, certainly for the first hour or so, every song you hear is a cover version of a different song. And then you have numerous instances in the film where you're thinking, oh, that's from Aliens. That's from an American Werewolf in London. But they're given this sort of Zack Snyder OTT mega twist as well, which I think makes him very, very interesting, you know, uh, as well. So maybe that's something we can get into in the spoiler special as mm-hmm. well. So I think there's a lot to talk about in the spoiler special. I, w- I will say that. And also, I will say it was interesting to see a sort of sunlit zombie movie. I thought yeah. that was interesting and cool and, and different to what we've seen before visually. So I like mm-hmm. that a lot. Yeah. Uh, it does feel like sometimes they've taken a dozen movies and smooshed them together and come up with Army of the Dead. But I have to say, for the most part, I thought the characters were, were interesting to think. Um, there's a father-daughter relationship between Dave Batista and Ella Prenell, which was was pretty effective. I liked Omari Hardwick. I like Matthias mm. Schweighofer as their German safecracker, uh, <laughs> who obviously impressed Zack Snyder and his wife Deborah Snyder so much so that the Army of the Dead prequel revolves around that character. Uh, not only that. that, he also directed the Army of the Dead prequel. So... You know, there you go. Um, <laughs> that's, that's that's there's your lesson. If you're in the Zack Snyder movie, impress the hell out of him, and you could direct your own movie. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think Tick the Taro is uh, is also pretty impressive in this. It's mm. funny. It's got a dark sense of humor. It is. Uh, I can't get into any of this shit for spoilers, but it's yeah. it's got a really interesting sensibility. Also, good action scenes for me. Zombie Hound, Action Hound, it ticked a lot of my boxes. Um, and we gave it as a magazine three stars. I thought it was a little harsh. I would go four for me personally, but sounds like Jimbo and Helen are in the three and maybe yeah. even yeah. maybe even lower count. No, no, no. But, oh, I'd, I'd go three. No? I'm happy yeah, with three. Okay. three. Yeah. So there we go. Army I'm of the Dead. I'm not a hater. Not a hater. Helen is not a hater. Uh, James is a hater, but not I'm a this hater, movie. But not for this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, so Army of the Dead is on Netflix right now, and I've just checked. It is not out in cinemas in the UK. So Netflix is the only show in town for Army of the Dead. Uh, however, Spiral from the Book of Saw, that's a completely different story. That is in theatres. Hell's Bells, tell yeah. us about this. Are you a disciple of Jigsaw? I am not, but I have seen some of the saws. At least I'm not sure I've seen all of them, but I've seen, seen some saw? of them. So I know the I, I know the the basic rules here. Anyway, this is set years after, of course, the death of the notorious Jigsaw Killer, and it begins with a hard bitten detective called Zeke, who is played by Chris Rock, um, who is hunting for a new murderer and comes to suspect that we may have a copycat on our hands. And more to the point, this copycat may be. Targeting police. <gasps> dun, 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 dun. Uh, so yeah, so that's that's the basic setup. Um, Samuel L. Jackson, as you mentioned earlier in the show, is his dad. Um, he has a new partner. He has a boss. They're all, you know, various shades of suspicious because it's that kind of film. I think the interesting thing here to me, because the last one of the saws that I saw, not in order, was the original, and. What's interesting to me is just how far this um, franchise has come because we yeah. went from having, what was it, 90 minutes in that film to sort of make up their minds and, and you know, 
make the decision to 90 seconds in these in most of these traps. So there's a real sense of not just escalation, but acceleration. And it's more, without getting into any spoilers, I don't think it's a big spoiler to say there's more gore than there is suspense here. So you have to have a strong stomach for that. Um, and that, to me, is a little bit of a shame because I think the moral dilemma of the Saw movies has always been the most interesting bit of them, even though the you know the gore gets most talked about. Mm. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I I it, I figured out pretty early on, you know, where some of the things were going, um, yeah. which is a shame. Um, but I didn't hate it as much as I maybe expected to. I thought that Chris Rock. <laughs> that is a recommendation, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Put that in your poster. I thought that Chris Rock was. Um, well, yeah, he was he was all right. He wasn't it wasn't a role I expected from him, and and there is a a bit of a disconnect because in in the very first scene you see him kind of joking about and being very Chris Rock, and then he goes into his character, and I almost wish they hadn't had that in the first scene because it's a it's a bit jarring to then go into the rest of the film. But yeah, it, it just this just feels a little bit like they've blended the Saw model to a much more standard police thriller, a sort of '90s police thriller, and and it doesn't always entirely work but there is a message here there is a you know some kind of point that that not all the saw films honestly have had so you know they're trying something new i appreciate that i just didn't think it always worked because it did feel a little bit cop thriller 101 at times yeah it's interesting i don't think this is the hard reset that we were promised mm. uh it's it does feel like a saw movie and that's Unavoidable, I think, because you have the the director of Saws two, three, and four, Darren Lynn Bowsman, who is back in this, and he's overcranking and undercranking, wombling free. He's doing all sorts of stuff with the camera. It feels it feels very much like a stylistic cousin to those movies. But my main problem was with the plot, which mm. I thought was really clunky, predictable, and the traps themselves. The you know the, the characters. I'm not sure how much you're rooting for any of them. Mm. Uh, which was a bit of a shame. It has got a f- effective scenes. Gorehounds will be pleased, just as yeah, you know, yeah. as uh, as God, they will be with Army of the Dead as well. Now I'm thinking about that. Um, you know, there's there's all sorts of stuff going on here. There's a really gnarly bit involving fingers. Yikes! Oh yeah, that was that's, unpleasant. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, you know, for me, it's not the most. It's not what I was hoping for. It's not the the unalloyed triumph that I was hoping for. But uh, I think. You know, this might be enough to send the series spiraling off in a different direction. Um, I do wonder why they called it Spiral, though, and not when Chris Rock is playing a cop who is trying to root out corruption in the police department, why they didn't just go for a Sopico. <sighs> Two stars then for Spiral from the Book of Saw. <laughs> and next up, we have Billy Piper. Billy Piper. Uh, who is making her directorial debut with Why? Rare Because Beast. she wants to. <laughs> Do you know anything else about Billy Piper? Absolutely nothing. Trent <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bavis. Breaking news. Uh, Billy Piper has made a very good, but kind of deeply unpleasant to watch film called <laughs> Rare Beasts. Uh, this has been described... I think by her or in the general PR gumpf as an anti-rom-com, which I think is actually quite an apt phrase in that this film basically follows all of the general rhythms 
of a classic rom-com. It is about a woman in her 30s who meets a man, they have a relationship together, will they, won't they stay together? And yet it kind of flips every part of that on its head by making him in particular deeply unpleasant. He is Pete, played by Leo Bill, and is just a horrible misogynist man who at least is very, very upfront about his terrible, terrible views. Uh, and Billy Piper is Mandy. Obviously, she she wrote this and directed it, and she's also the lead of the film, playing Mandy, who is uh, a, a mother who is basically just caught in the chaos of life. I think this film does a pretty strong job of bringing the chaotic state of Mandy's life and her head and the world around her to the screen in a way that is very, very well done. It feels like a controlled chaos to me. I think she does a lot of very interesting things to put forward Mandy's outlook on the world and on this relationship. Uh, But it is a very, very stressful watch for all of its 87 odd minutes. There's some really great performances in this. It's just, and it's very well made. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. While you're watching it, you're completely in the vision of what this film was very clearly intended to be. Whether you're in tune with that vision or not, whether that is uh, an enjoyable way to spend just under 90 minutes is debatable, but I thought it was very well done and I will probably never watch it again. <laughs> have you have you watched I Hate Susie? I haven't. So no, that's her that TV, TV series, series, isn't it? That, yeah, that Billy Piper co-created with Lucy Preble, um, which she and the character she plays in there is not a million miles away from Mandy, and that I mean it's an incredibly good series. It, yeah, I mean she's really, really good in that. And I, if you've seen that series, like it, I think it became clear from that that like, Billy Piper's got a lot of talent actually in terms mm-hmm. of writer. And I think this is aggressively well written and in your face, but it's also aggressively hard to watch because. As you say, like Leo Bill's character is such a shit, and he's hateful on an almost entirely other level. Yeah, and almost everyone in it is, if not hateful, there's the very there's, there's no one really to root for. I think is the problem with this film, and and it's very, I I almost think it's commendable how bold and in your face it is about what it is and what it wants to do. Like it tries to make you uncomfortable. It's a deliberate choice. She throws it at you like at a thousand miles an hour. And it's really abstract and surreal in places. There are fantasy sequences in it. Um, and it's really sad in places. And it's also really depressing. Um, not not for any reason other than you just think people are just awful. Um, but I just think, you know, the fact that she has written this and she has directed its directorial debut for her, it's an, it's an incredible accomplishment, sort of yeah. technically speaking. As you said, there is nothing on earth that will ever make me watch this again but I think it's genius <laughs> yeah it was really well done but but yeah. just no just a hard no. pass on, hard on. No. <laughs> yeah no it's it's not one to watch when you're single and probably not one to watch when you're in a relationship no. either it's 100%. you know it, it has a really interesting weird tone to it as well that feels very specific to her in that on the one hand it is very cinematic because she's using all these different mm. tricks mm. and, yeah, and yeah, techniques yeah. to get across like I said the chaos of Mandy's world while at the same time it feels very self-consciously theatrical and artificial. So it's kind of theatrical and cinematic at the same time in a way that is a lot to take in, but it's really impressively done. Wow, we're we're really really hitting the uh, hitting out of the park this week with the poster quotes, aren't we? I I I didn't hate this as much as I thought, and then hard pass. Don't see this film if you're single, or in fact if you're in a relationship. I mean, and we gave this four stars. It is, and it's, no, look, it's really stars. well it's made. Definitely yeah, it's, a four star film. It's very yeah, but I just it's yeah. I'm glad I saw it once. I I'm mm. also glad no one's going to make me watch it again. Like that's yeah. that's what it's There's one of another those. Another poster quote. <laughs> 
I've just seen the news that Kate Hudson has joined Knives Out 2. Kate Hudson, Knives Out 2. The cast is only getting hotter, people. It's all happening. Wow. There you go, Ryan Johnson. You, we, we've seen through your little tricks trying to hold your casting news until after 6 p.m. on a Thursday so you could catch us out. But no, we've overrun. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it, Johnson. Uh, yes, well done, Kate Hudson. Uh, fully on board. No, stop saying these things. Uh, yes, four stars then for Kate Hudson in Knives Out 2 and four stars also for Rare Beasts. And we're going to finish off with very, very quickly talking about my New York year. I think they should have stuck with my Salinger year. I don't think my New York year makes much sense, but there you go. We yep. are in New York City in 1995 and Margaret Qualley plays Joanna, who is, uh, she's done her her um basic degree and her MA and I think she's in the middle of a PhD when she decides to chuck it and move to New York what? because she's offered a job at a literary agency headed by Margaret who is Sigourney Weaver's character. Joanna is all bright eyes and bushy tailed but this is not going to be some Devil Wears Prada style crushing of her spirit. It's mm-hmm. more a sort of finding herself story. Um, it is based on the, the memoir that was written by the real Joanna by the way and and you know it is a true story more or less. So um, Margaret's big client is J.D. Salinger or Jerry as he's known around the office and Joanna has to basically be his point of contact and finds herself continually drawn to the question of getting in touch with all these people who write these incredibly moving fan letters to him, which pub policy is not to answer. And she's kind of drawn into to sort of maybe trying to answer some of this fan mail in non-approved ways for a start. But this is not one of those kind of, you know, films about a literary fraud being carried out. This is not a film that focuses particularly on her career at this literary agency. It's more a general, slightly wishy-washy, slightly, um, that's too, that's too harsh a word, but it's, it is a little bit wishy-washy, but it's just a kind of a general coming of age story, a general finding her path. It's slight. A general, it's, it is slight. Yeah. But it's, it's very pleasant Mm. to watch at the same time. Like Joanna is very, very likable. Quali, I think, is really lovely in the role. She's got this great smile, which she she holds for specific moments in the story to give most impact. But she is, you know, she comes across as naive. She comes across as unsure of herself. And she does gradually develop a little bit mm. during the story. And you can kind of see her grow as a person during this story, um, you know, surrounded by all these amazing people, but also aware of their shortcomings, aware of their flaws, and aware increasingly of her own as well. And and also aware of what she what it is she wants to do in her life and and you know where she should be going. So it is slight, but it is very likable. And I think mm-hmm. if you are tired of all of these murders that we've been talking about and the zombies and the monsters and the killings, this could be just <laughs> the ticket uh, to get past it. This is directed by Philippe Falardou. Spot on French pronunciation. There. Amazing. Incredible. Uh, absolutely wonderful. Uh, and I enjoyed it. I had a good time with it as well. Good performances. And, uh, you know, Margaret Qualley and Sigourney Weaver, who confusingly plays Margaret, it's very. Oh. I, I I struggled. There was a character called Margaret and an actor called Margaret. Oh, what, what am I doing? No. Uh, but yeah, it's it's fine. It doesn't have the acerbic qualities of uh, Devil Wears Prada, but it has a nice humane streak as well. There's there's nice exchange between the two of them towards the mm. end of the movie, and uh, and good performances throughout yeah. as well. So yes, three stars for my New York year, aka my Salinger year. Have we done this fact on the three fact structure? You know that J.D. Salinger's son, Matt, was the original Captain America, right? I do, yeah. Okay. 
good. Just wanted to check. Just double checking, just making sure we were all on the same page. Three stars in from my New York year. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by Mark Strong. Mark hey. Strong. Star of Cruella. Cruella de Cruella de Vil. She doesn't scare you. No evil thing will. Yeah, that one. Some people know the lyrics. Yep. So Mark Strong's going to be in the show. And I think as well, this interview has happened. Finally, it has happened. We managed to round up two hobbits. Nasty fat hobbitses. Hey. No, they're delightful lovely. hobbits. Uh, delightful, they were delightful, delightful hobbits. Hobbitses. Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd, whose new podcast, The Friendship Onion, is out. The first episode is out this week. It's out every Tuesday. And uh, Jimbo and I had a lovely chat with him yesterday. Uh, chaotic, rambling, <laughs> shambolic, possibly even arrestable. Who knows? But anyway, uh, they'll be on next week's show as well. But until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, Squadcast names, Spiral, based on the novel Push by Sapphire, <laughs> Tran Bavis. Goodbye. Oh my god, Michael Palin's coming in. He's got a knife. No! Oh! <laughs> to be clear, Ben is joking. He's not. <laughs> oh no! What if Michael Palin suddenly just stood behind yeah, you? opens the door behind Ben. You wouldn't believe us. This is a perfect... This is exactly what Michael Palin yeah. wants us to do. He wants he us to host. Yeah. He's going to stand behind you and, you're, and we're going to be like, Michael Palin's behind you with a knife. And then I you mean, won't like, believe us. Great and joke, then- guys. We're keeping the joke going. This is why I'm clarifying it. So that will never happen. I'm yes. clarifying this to undo his alibi. And it never would happen either. There if you go. If that does happen, allow Peter Pan to bury me in Kensington Gardens, please. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I would like to have seen Montana. It oh. is goodbye from No Time to Pun, James yeah, Dyer. I was short of time. What can I tell you? <laughs> James, you power napped during the episode, yeah. uh, which is pretty impressive. And is it though? <laughs> <laughs> it is goodbye from Cher and Cher alike, Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me, Saw Pico. I'm off to write a very long letter of explanation slash apology to Michael, Impal- Michael Palin. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.